0: Which one do I do next? Did you say Job? Job. So this will be episode 1,000. Oh my gosh, this is getting close. 1,097. All right, we're close to a centennial episode. Yeah. What do we do now? Now that we care about I, things less about do, like I celebrating,
1: don't know. I don't. well to think. We should think about. It. We should do something. We have. We've we kind could, of been a little neglectful hey, of the main feed, so we should do something for. We it. could do right, right.
0: I'm not saying we have to do it right on 1,100, but. We still haven't done episode of the year from before. I'm not saying we have to do the whole... Right. I don't want to do the whole award show. I just want to do... We just have to at least get episode of the year. So maybe this week I'll start working on getting a poll up so people can start voting. Yeah. That sounds good. I think I'll start with the Patreon listeners and they can help us make our nominees. Right. The short list. I mean, that could be something for 1,100. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> but if you have other idea,
1: yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll contemplate it.
0: All right. I'm ready when you are. It's 1,097.
1: Episode 1097, George, Job, and Ivan.
0: Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson.
1: I'm Ben Moro. We're back for uh, not exactly connected to an episode connected to the Holiness Trilogy we did, but but kind of tangential to that, I would say. If you think of like where we left that one and the whole, you know, talking about mundane trauma, talking about the shadow self and everything. And, and I would say, you know, for people who like, uh, or dislike episodes where we, we delve into my psyche, you can just decide if based on, on your appreciation or lack thereof of those, if this episode's going to be for you. But, yeah I I wanted I I know we've talked about this for a long time in fact I think it was on an episode potential episode list at one point doing an episode on the book of Job cuz I've been very fascinated by the book of Job for a very very long time so I'm sure I've mentioned it before I think
0: you're right and now you've got me looking back in our old
1: emails I have a spot where I keep your ideas Yeah the thing about Job is that it's it's not a great one to to search for Right. It, <laughs> every time you've mentioned job, it, it also triggers.
0: Uh, I'll, I'll check it out, but I I seem to remember you having an idea to talk about job in the past.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I've been I've been fascinated with job for a very long time, going all the way back to at Epic Life when you know my pre Catholic days, uh, the church plant that we were both part of. I I led a retreat at one point, and the topic of the retreat was the book of Job, and we kind of walked through it and everything. And so uh it's it's one of those things that uh, I think, you know, it's maybe a little silly to say, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And I don't think I would say it's my favorite book of the Bible, even in that silly sense, but it's probably the book of the Bible that has fascinated me the most over the years. And it's interesting because it's popularly considered And I think this is a little dubious given oral tradition and everything, but it's, it's considered to be one of, if not the oldest Mm -hmm. written book of the Bible. And if we could just run with that for a second, again, leaving aside oral tradition and, and some of the origins that it's probably impossible to trace back what the truly oldest, oldest record of anything in scripture is. Like it's a, it's a really interesting place for the biblical tradition to start because it starts at such a, a primal place. You know, so if you haven't read Job recently, you're probably familiar with it in outline, but the basic premise is, Job's a good guy, you know, he's he's one of the best. Uh God's a big fan of his. Mm-hmm. Satan shows up in heaven and says, well, if I take everything away from Job, Uh, you know, kill his family, destroy his property, all of that, then he's going to curse you. And so it's kind of this bet between God and Satan, which right there is fairly unsettling (laughs) to -hmm. to, to think about. And so God gives Satan the okay. Uh, All of this happens to Job. You know, he loses his health. Satan's essentially just not allowed to kill him, but everything else happens. And then the majority of the book is this debate between Job and his rather unhelpful friends trying to figure out what is going on. Job finally gets uh, upset enough to challenge God. God shows up, doesn't give Job an answer, and then things go back to the way they were. And it's kind of this, what was that ending to the book? And I think even the quote-unquote happy ending where Job is restored is uh, one of the things I've been thinking about more recently in my contemplation of the book is that that's not actually that happy of an ending, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. Because, like, Job's kids are still dead. He just gets new ones. But that's not like, you know, my car broke and then God blessed me with a new car. It's like this isn't actually a happy ending. Because you know, all of the trauma and all the tragedy and everything else is, is still there. And so it's, what do you do with that? And so Job is, is if you're to put this in theological terms, it's taking on what's called theodicy, or more popularly, the problem of evil. And the problem of evil, in a philosophical sense, says if God is all good, and all-powerful, then how can evil exist? Because if God is all-good but not all-powerful, it makes sense. If God is all-powerful but not all-good, it makes sense. But if God uh, is all-good, so would not want evil, and uh, is all-powerful, could eliminate evil, then how do you reconcile the existence of God with that? And it's it's a fascinating philosophical debate. But what I like about Job— is that it's so much more primal than that. Like theodicy is the problem of the book of Job abstracted into an intellectual debate. And with Job, you'd certainly have this debate going on between him and his friends, but like the intellectual debate part is almost a joke. It gets almost a joke in the book of Job. Like these friends of his are are clearly out of their depth. They don't know what they're talking about. Everything they're saying is unhelpful. And, you know, then when Job decides to debate God, it's the most one slop-sided debate in history. God doesn't even answer him. He just, you know, throws the hammer down and, and that's that. And so if you put what's going on in Job in conversation with the Odyssey, as it's popularly uh, understood, even though there's certainly topical overlap, they're very they're worlds apart. They're completely worlds apart. And to me, I almost go to, like, the Ian McGilchrist dynamic of, like, left hemisphere, right hemisphere. If you didn't hear that series, you know, the 10-second run-up is that our left hemisphere of our brains categorizes things. It's more logical. It wants to sort things out. The right hemisphere is flow-based. It's experiential and everything. And so it's like the problem of evil is in the middle. Theodicy, the philosophical debate, wants to come at it from this sort of left hemisphere. Uh, Explain this. How does this logically work? And you know that's very much what job is doing when he uh, when he confronts God and God shows up but then uh, on the other side of it is the only answer he gets blocks out that side of it entirely and invites job into the flow of life, with the transcendent, it's the biggest non answer, and it's the only answer that you get where God basically just, you know, where were you? And I, you know, chapter after chapter of listing all the things that, that God did that Job didn't. And he tells him to gird up his loins, which is always a great biblical. Uh, like, like, you idiot, what do you think you're doing? And, and you know, even when, when Job tries to tap out, God just sort of keeps going. It's, it's pretty terrific. And I think that what's, what to me is endlessly fascinating about that, maybe fascinating is even the wrong word, is like the theodicy as a philosophical problem. I can engage with intellectually and be very interested in. And there's a interesting—tons uh, of ink has been spilled over the centuries on that. and And I'm not going to say it's not a debate worth having. But what is in Job is none of that. What's in Job is the question that comes out when everything in your life has gone to hell and you're left dealing with that. And it's like, at that point, it doesn't matter— what philosophical answer anybody gives to anything like that you're just left there in this kind of naked raw bleeding on the side of the road state and like that's where job comes at the problem of evil with and i was thinking about this it's like the problem of evil tends to To come at, uh, to be approached from a few different levels of experience. You know, there's recorded evil, like how can a good God exist with the Holocaust? How can a good God exist with the world of child abuse? And and for some people that, of course, is not uh, just recorded, it's experiential, but with things that maybe for a lot of us are not uh, individually felt. And then you get this sort of acute suffering, you know, the death of a loved one, tragedy that strikes in your life, and then uh, you get The mundane suffering which is what i was talking about in the holiness trilogy and i think i have a i was thinking about this today i have a, a good companion in that in dante it's like finding yourself in the 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 dark woods because you had somehow lost the way it's just like this piling up of suffering and small things a death by a thousand cuts and it's like you know that's where dante finds himself at the beginning of of uh inferno and of the comedy and it's finding your way through that it's like that's the part of suffering that job speaks to is that personalized suffering It's like yes we can all recognize atrocities in history and want to figure out and suss out how does that work with god um but there's something else when it, it comes close to home and so what I want to throw out as we explore this a little bit is hit on a few different images uh, as you're kind of sitting there, so I, uh, and, and contemplating this. So you know, the title of the, the episode: Job, George, and Ivan, or whatever order I put them in when I said the title. Uh, of course, Job is Job, um, but the the first image, the George, though. I want to contemplate a few images here of this and and our first images come uh in sort of this pending state of of experiencing acute trauma, mundane trauma, whatever it is, and you're complimenting it and so where my brain goes with, with this was with George Bailey in it's a wonderful life like it's a wonderful life has this reputa- reputation as this kind of schmaltzy, saccharine crisp we put it on at Christmas because it makes you feel good uh and it does but like you rewind the movie a little bit and what do you have? You have George Bailey on a bridge contemplating suicide. Like it's a wonderful life is actually pretty dark (laughs) before you get to, you know, every time a bell rings an angel gets its wings, like that's great. But like, there's this actual darkness that's there. And I think George Bailey, you know, his life just kind of falls apart through death by a thousand cuts. Uh, and finding yourself there staring into the abyss of this freezing river below him. And, of course, catastrophe hits and Clarence shows up. But it's like, forget that for a second. Like, you, There's just this powerful image there in uh, the Deus Ares playing. And it's actually a much deeper moment, I think, in film that people give it credit for. And you, you just have this staring into the abyss. And it's like George goes on and gets his answer which is more than an answer I think Job gets and more of an answer than we tend to get in our life. But forget that part of the movie and just sit there in that pending state. You know, or think of like the Tree of Life, uh, the great montage in the middle of the, that movie where contemplating the death of a child, the, the mother in that movie is, you hear her voice over praying, where are you? And then we get the, you know, the montage of creation through Tree of Life. And so you're you're left with, like, to really contemplate the problem of evil in a Job-esque way, you have to start there. Like, you have to start on the bridge, staring down into the water. And you have to feel this terrifying possibility that maybe that's all there is. Maybe there isn't enough of an answer to the problem of suffering. Maybe there's just nothing it's actually a deeply nihilistic moment and it's a wonderful life and so before we go on to what god's answer is you have to first look there and looking there the image that occurs to me there is that that of a a movie i just watched this last week called the seventh continent so The Seventh Continent is from director Michael Haneke. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, but his movies are, are are typically not cheerful. Is this as you're going through the Criterion It collection? is. It is. Yeah, so so they have three of his movies there I uh, remember recently.
0: You, yeah, I can't remember if you've mentioned it in the main feed, but Ben's closing in on completing his journey through the entire Criterion Collection. I'm like 18 spines off, so we're Which getting close. may sound like a lot, but in light of the fact that it's...
1: Uh, almost... Or no, over eleven 1, hundred, almost twelve hundred at this point. Yeah. So, so with only
0: eighteen left, it's like, well, that's you're basically done.
1: Right, yeah. basically done. And along the way, I had to watch this cheerful movie, <laughs> The Seventh Continent. So The Seventh Continent, um, like we've talked about, how you know, you often don't like disturbing movies, right? Uh, and oftentimes, movies you find disturbing, I do not. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie deeply disturbed me, and it it was. Weird, because I didn't realize until the next day that it had, uh, because the way the movie is shot is it's very mundane. I've talked about like this Jean Dealman movie where you just watch her, you know, washing dishes for three hours until she snaps. It's it's shot like that, where you're just watching this family go through their routine And, you know, very much influenced by Robert Bresson, who's done things like Pickpocket, Man Escaped, Diary of a Country Priest, uh, where a lot of focus on just the actions of the individuals. And so for the first hour or so of this movie, you're just watching this family go through this. And then you realize that there's just this sort of nihilistic despair setting in. And the last 30 minutes of the movie involves this family just without emotion. Very matter-of-factly destroying every possession in their house and overdosing on sleeping pills to commit suicide. It's very, very dark, very, very unsettling. Uh it's a movie in the category of like Sallow or something like that, though it's like with Sallow, and I know I've mentioned that one. If you're very curious, you can go look it up on Wikipedia, but you know, be warned. (laughs) It's not pleasant to even read about. Like it's so over the top. This is the opposite. It was so understated. There's no horrific imagery in the film. It's just watching these people slide into this nihilistic pit of despair. And it's something so awful to contemplate. Like, it really disturbed me. You know, we talked about, oh, it's in the Criterion Collection, so it's actually a collection of three of his movies. I had to take a little break. Like, I had to go watch, mm. skip ahead a few spines. I was like, we're not ready for another Michael Haneke movie tonight After, after that little cheerful <laughs> adventure. That was a little much. You know, but it's like, that's... As you you sit there on the bridge, like, that's what you're staring into, is that as a possibility. The other way with that is, and and I'm going to quote Ivan Karamazov, uh, Brothers Karamazov, Karamazov, however you pronounce it, in a minute. But, like, one of the things Ivan says in the Brothers is, you know, he starts alluding to this idea that if – god isn't real then everything is permitted and it's like so there's this hedonistic place you can go and dostoevsky explores that very very deeply in his novel the devils that i just finished reading you know so the, the his idea behind the devils uh, it's actually deeply prophetic cuz he's kind of seen a good 30ish years before the russian revolution where the country is going and that it's about a group of young revolutionaries who have sloughed off the old morality and have reached this sort of nihilistic place, and what's left there is hedonism and violence. Uh, It's probably Dostoevsky's darkest novel. uh, as very, very profound as he explores this and explores what his country is going to become. And he names the book demons or devils or the possessed. Those are kind of the three translated titles and opens it with the epigraph, uh, from the gospel of Luke of, of Jesus casting out the demons into the herd of swine. And it's like you know, that this type of nihilism that possesses you is literally demonic in a way that you can't quite wrap your head around. And what I think is really powerful about those images, although admittedly they're very, very disturbing and unsettling, uh, is that if you want to take something like the book of Job seriously, you can't intellectualize it into we're going to have a philosophical debate about the nature of evil and the goodness of God. It's like these are the stakes you're playing with. Is that kind of nihilism, that kind of darkness that's just pervading everything. There's something very, very heavy. And I think people who've experienced trauma, whether it's acute trauma or this mundane trauma, this Dante-esque, um, lost in the woods, like that's what you're looking at. You know, going back to Dante for a second, like the, the woods imagery, actually is indicative symbolically within the Inferno of suicide. You know, the the suicides have been turned into trees when we get Mm. down into the Inferno. So symbolically, what Dante is alluding to there is not just, I'm a little confused, I'm not sure what to do about God. It's that I've lost my way and I'm staring into that void. You know, I'm on the same journey of the characters in The Seventh Continent. Of course, Dante would put it that way. Um, You know, but that's what I'm looking at. Like, that's the void. What do you do with that? And I think that, again, it's not that there isn't a place to have an intellectual response to the problem of evil, but unless somebody has looked there, I don't think they are at all prepared to give a response unless you've sat there and felt that void and you felt it creeping at the edges of your psyche in a very profound way um and just for the record i am not suicidal as i talk about this being like my own contemplations but i am somebody who's who's you know especially over the last six, seven months, just felt that death by a thousand cuts. I'm not suicidal or anywhere close to it, but I have felt the edges of that void. It's a very dark place. It's a very, very dark place. And until you can contemplate that, you're not really ready to deal with anything. And so the alternative then is God's answer to Job, which is the biggest non-answer in the world, which is basically an answer of transcendence. Like, the answer isn't everything's going to be better. God does not say that. It is not a guarantee that this will all somehow be worth it in the end. It's not a solution. It is not a rational response. It is not, you know, philosophy. It's not even eucatastrophe in the way that George Bailey experiences. It's simply an invitation to the transcendence. That's why I think that uh, Tree of Life is so powerful because that's the same answer that movie gives. It's like, you, where are you? Well, I'm not going to answer that. Instead, what I'm going to do is take you back to the beginning moments of creation and show you transcendence through that process.
0: I've been interested in rewatching that movie, and I wonder, we kind of did a deep dive like activity with, um, Apocalypse now. And I wonder if we could do that with Tree of Life.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that could I mean there's a lot there to contemplate. There's a lot lot to talk about. And so you're kind of left like in the book of Job with this choice. And it's interesting as we, you know, this maybe as a bridge episode to getting back to the C and the End series but then also from the Holiness uh, series is I came across uh this quote from Ivan in, in Brothers Karamazov uh, today and I uh, I'm very excited. One day, maybe not that far off, we're gonna do a deep dive on Brothers over in the, uh, the 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 extra feed,
0: which uh, is at patreon.com forward slash the sci-fi Christian.
1: So if you want more of this, uh, Patreon, the, the Patreon, yeah, it's good good stuff. And what's tragic about Ivan? So if you haven't read The Brothers Karamazov, there's there's three brothers, um, and the two that will and just for simplifying this discussion here, is there's Alyosha who is a holy fool. You know, Dostoevsky novels always have a holy fool in them. Somebody who is in the world's eyes, deeply naive, but, but is possessed by this profound faith. And Alyosha is, uh has been living at a monastery and he's being at the beginning of the novel, sent out into the world by his elder monk, uh Father Zosima, who, who's there. And, as he's sent out into the world, one of the first conversations he has with Ivan is with his older brother Ivan, who sees. Actually, I don't remember if Ivan's older or younger. So, if, you're, if there's any brothers aficionados out there, and I know there are, don't 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 uh, jump on on me too much there, um, but he and Ivan have this great conversation fairly early in the novel that actually is one of the novel's most famous sections of this sort of story within the story of the grand inquisitor. We're not going to really dive into the grand inquisitor that much, but Ivan lays out his own views on the problem of evil in this. And his answer is very tragic because he gets so close doesn't get there he says let me tell you that in the last analysis this world of gods i don't accept it even though i know that it exists and i don't admit its validity in any way it isn't god i don't accept you see it's the world created by him the world of god i don't accept and cannot agree to accept let me qualify that like a young babe, I am convinced that our sufferings will be healed and soothed, smoothed away, that the whole offensive comedy of human conflict will disappear like a pathetic mirage, like the infamous fabrication of the Euclidean human mind, as weak and undersized as an atom, and that ultimately, during the universal finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and become manifest something so precious that it will be sufficient for all hearts, for the soothing of all indignation, the redemption of all men's evil doings all the blood that has been shed by them will be sufficient not only to make it possible to forgive, but even to justify all the things that have happened to men. And even if all that, all of it, makes itself manifest and becomes reality, I will not accept it and do not want to accept it. Even if the parallel lines converge and I actually witness it, I shall witness it and say that they have converged, but all the same, I shall not accept it. So you go back to, like, this Ian McGilchrist dynamic, left hemisphere, right hemisphere. There it is again. Like, answer to the problem of evil is that you're not going to get an answer so long as you are in Ivan's boat where the two parallel lines, and that's a reference to earlier in the chapter where he's talking about the sort of Euclidean geometry of this is the world God has created, and these parallel lines can never intersect. So even if the possible impossible happens I won't accept it because I know that it's impossible and when you approach the problem of evil demanding that answer in a sense that's what you are asking for is an explanation for how the impossible can become possible and the only answer that you get is that you aren't going to get an answer to that but that somehow those two lines are going to intersect. That's it. That's it. And it's deeply unsatisfying. You know, I think that's like the brilliance of the book of Job. I'm going to say something that I don't believe this strongly, but I'm going to say it to make a point. If it wasn't for the book of Job, I don't know that the Judeo-Christian tradition would have the moral authority to speak on the problem of evil. Because, again, I'm saying that more strongly than I I probably actually feel. But that's how profound that idea is. It's like, if if evil exists, and it does, and God exists, and he's good, and then you feel that suffering a profound way, the only path forward is the flow of reality, the flow of the transcendent, the Dantean journey through hell you don't get an explanation. Just like Dante doesn't get an explanation, but yet somehow when you reach the beatific vision at the end of Paradiso, things are okay. Somehow you catastrophe intervenes and George Bailey doesn't jump over the bridge and things are okay. And probably the greatest answer that is given in the book of Job is that if you aren't willing to do that and you insist on an answer, then you wind up where Ivan is. And where Ivan is, is on that same road as the characters in Devils. It's on the same road as the characters in the Seventh Continent. There is endless darkness there, and the alternative doesn't make sense, but it is the only alternative you get. That's my thoughts on the Book of Job.
0: Nice. Nicely done. I, I like it. I like this return to some of the theological talk. And so uh, I was just looking back actually. When did we, where did we leave off with uh, the Holiness trilogy? It wasn't that long ago, April, a couple months back. Yeah. And we've been doing a lot of reviews since then, but we're back to it now. So. Right. Thanks for bringing it back.
1: Getting back to Ian Chris, very soon,
0: maybe even next week. All right. What else we got? Here's, there's some other things you mentioned. Potentially business advice from Ben, if you can remember what that yeah, was.
1: Yeah, we we can do that sometime.
0: Uh, the news. <laughs> maybe we'll bring back the news. <laughs> I I put a call out, you know, an episode ten ninety five. I put a call out, listeners, if you love the news and you've been missing the news episodes. And has anyone answered the call? Email me at feedback at Zero. Again, yeah, zero. So I no, think nobody the, likes the I think the signs are clear. I kind of like them because we get the chit chat about what's happening in current news. Well but. here's
1: one piece of news just for the trail into the episode. Cormac McCarthy died this last yeah, week. One I of the that. greats I yep. uh, we're on the Patreon feed, we read through the book poster, which if you're not familiar is a poster of books. Yeah, and to uh, read. Yeah, we have have Blood Meridian coming up on one of our next lives. You're going to recommend it? Uh, It's been sitting in my Audible for a long time.
0: All right. Well, speaking of that, I think we're going to do a book poster episode next or later tonight. I think so.
1: Yeah, we can do it next. All right, listeners,
0: that's all from here. I'm Matt Edison.
1: I'm Ben DiBono.
0: And we're the South Christian signing off.
1: Goodbye.